You're listening to Bible Prophecy Daily, a weekday podcast where Bible prophecy matters and matters greatly. Hey guys, this is Travis Snow, and thanks for tuning into the podcast. On today's episode, we're going to be talking about the Feast of Tabernacles, past, present, and future. Uh, What did this feast signify in its historical context when God first gave it to the Israelites over 3,500 years ago? And then, of course, we'll be looking at its messianic application for us today, where Jesus actually draws on the Feast of Tabernacles to give us a spiritual lesson for our lives. And then last but certainly not least, how all of this ties into the prophetic or eschatological significance and meaning of this feast, which the prophets actually uh, say we will be celebrating when the Messiah returns. So first and foremost, when we're thinking about the Feast of Tabernacles, Most people know the Feast of Tabernacles by the tabernacle structures or kind of the temporary huts that God commanded Israel to build when this feast is celebrated. So I'm not going to read the exact scriptures in Leviticus 23 and Deuteronomy, but basically God said during this time for seven days, you're going to build a temporary hut. You're going to build a tabernacle. In Hebrew, it's called a sukkah, and the uh, plural form of that is sukkot. So in Jewish tradition, this time is simply known as sukkot. So God said, you're going to build a sukkah outside, and you're going to live in it for seven days in the seventh month. And originally, Israel, it seems, was supposed to actually camp outside and live in these huts, Whereas today, the Jewish people mostly just kind of put them in the backyard or out in the street somewhere and enjoy a nice meal in the evening or breakfast or whatever. But originally, it seems like Israel was to live in these huts. And some people today, they still go camping during Sukkot and they kind of take it all the way to the uh, literal biblical application there. But anyways, the reason God told Israel to build these these Sukkot, these uh, Sukkah dwellings, was as a commemoration of their time in the wilderness, because obviously when Israel was living in the wilderness for 40 years, uh, they didn't have a permanent place to dwell. So God said, build the sukkah, live in the sukkah during this time of the year, and then you will remember the Exodus, kind of like the Passover is looking back to the Exodus and some of the other feasts as well. Um, Everything is about bringing Israel back to the Exodus and reminding them that God sustained them during this time. And even right there, there's an application for our lives during uh, this time of year. We remember that we are living in a temporary shelter. We're, we're living in the midst of the kind of instability and fragility, the wilderness of this world, if you will. And we are fully dependent on God to bring us through, and we're fully dependent on God's provision and his grace to sustain us uh, through the difficulties, trials, and wilderness of this life. So uh, the sukkah really represents a lot of what we experience in the fallen world. But moving beyond that, which I love the sukkah element, I love uh, building the sukkah and eating meals in the sukkah. I actually live in a 
a condo at the moment that does not allow us to do so. But rest assured, God willing, when my wife and I move out of this place in the next year or so and hopefully get a house, we will be building our sukkah every single year in the backyard and taking it from there. We'll see how much I actually decide to sleep in it or eat in it or however that goes. But moving beyond the sukkah element, which is beautiful, uh, when you look more at the core of Sukkot and where it falls on the calendar, and this is going to be important to understand too in terms of its prophetic meaning, really Sukkot was the, the climax of the agricultural year. And it was really the climax of the harvest season. So it occurs in the seventh month after most of the produce had been brought in for the year. So earlier in the spring, you have the harvest of a lot of the grain products, the wheat and the barley. That's more connected with Passover and the spring feast. And then later on in the fall, you would get some other produce items like grapes and certain fruits and the olives would be harvested. So Sukkot was the time where God basically said to bring a sacrifice to the Lord and to present to him uh, from your your offerings from the field, but it was also a time that was deeply associated with joy and rejoicing in the Lord and rejoicing in his favor and rejoicing in his provision and blessing because he had carried the people through the year. They had gotten all their crops in. He had provided for them at the end of the year. They were able to get their grapes and make their wine and harvest their olives and make their make their olive oil. And all of this was central to their lifestyle as a people, the ancient Israelites. So this was the time basically to rejoice. And above all other feasts, or I should say in comparison to all other feasts, Sukkot is the one biblical feast that is really just associated with feasting. All the other feasts have different dynamics and different things that are done. And on Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement, you were actually supposed to fast. But Sukkot is really the time when everything is coming to completion and God basically says, rejoice in my provision, rejoice in in what I've done for you, and just feast. Just kind of have a party for seven days. So it occurred in the seventh month for uh, seven days, and it's actually also the seventh feast, the seventh annual feast on the biblical calendar. So seventh month for seven days, and it's the seventh annual feast on the calendar. So it's bringing together that notion of completion, 777, kind of tying everything together and bringing the year to consummation and bringing the year to its climax. And so I'm just going to read here in Deuteronomy 16, 13 to 15, the Lord says, you shall celebrate the feast of booths or tabernacles seven days after you have gathered in from your threshing floor and your wine vat. And you shall rejoice in your feast because the Lord your God will bless you in all your produce and in all the work of your hands so that you will be altogether joyful. So just right on the surface there, you can see that at its core, Sukkot was really about celebrating the harvest. Now, that is important as kind of a background for understanding where Jesus teaches on Sukkot and some of the lessons that he draws from this festival, and then also bridging forward into the Messianic age, what perhaps we will be doing during this time and what it kind of points forward to. So 
We'll start with Jesus in the Gospels. And in John chapter 7, it's one of the uh, core passages, I'd say. I'd say it's probably the most important passage in the New Testament in terms of giving more information about Sukkot. Um, So Jesus is there in Jerusalem in John chapter 7. And he's there celebrating the feast. All the people are there celebrating the feast. But what's important to know is when this was celebrated in the time of Jesus, there was something that took place in the temple called the water libation ceremony. It has a different Hebrew name, but I'll just call it in English the water libation ceremony. And for those who are interested in really going deeper into this, I cover all of this in my most recent book, The Biblical Feast and the Return of Jesus. I have two chapters on the Feast of Tabernacles, and I go deeper into the water libation ceremony and how important it was. But basically, what would happen during the water libation ceremony is the high priest would lead a procession of worshipers outside of the 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 holy city of Jerusalem, outside the city gates. And he would carry in his hand this golden pitcher. And then they would lead this procession down to the pool of Siloam, which was outside of the city walls, and they would draw the water from the pool of Siloam. And then he would lead the temple worshipers, uh, or the worshipers from the city, back up into the city, through the gates, into the temple. And as he did this, the priest, other priest, would blow trumpets and sing praises to God, and they would quote from the prophet Isaiah, where Isaiah says, you will draw water from the springs of salvation. And then once they got back into the city, they would basically pour some of the water out from the top of the altar, and they would kind of make this libation from the water to the Lord. And really what that was doing was, It was kind of an enacted prayer. So they were recognizing God's provision because obviously for the people to get their their food from the land, God had to send the rain in the previous year. And so what they're doing at Sukkot is they were celebrating the rain, but then they were also kind of petitioning God to send what were called the latter rains that would fall on the earth, you know, later in the fall and through the winter Um, and allow the the harvest for the next year to be reaped. So they're celebrating, but they're also kind of petitioning God through this water libation ceremony to send the rain that they would need for the next year. And in the time of Jesus, also, because we know these passages from Isaiah, which speak about the Lord's salvation— you know, drawing water from the wells of salvation, it started taking on this messianic element as well to where the spiritual provision, or I should say the spiritual experience was linked to the physical experience. So the physical provision that the people were experiencing and the bounty from the earth that they were experiencing during Sukkot, it was understood to foreshadow the spiritual abundance that people would experience when the Messiah came, and also the the abundance of the Messianic age and just the agricultural abundance that we will experience from the earth in the Messianic age. So in the time of Jesus, you have all of these kind of ideas swirling around the celebration of Sukkot. It's connected to the Messiah and spiritual abundance and physical abundance and petitioning God to send the latter rains. All of this is going on, and this water libation ceremony, it was a really big deal. 
and everybody knew about it, and it would be repeated every single day for, um, I believe it started on the second day, if I'm not mistaken, and then it would go all the way through the seventh day and climax on the seventh day. So Jesus is there, that's all background, Jesus is there in John chapter 7, and the feast is being celebrated. And then beginning in verse 37, it says, Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So, when Jesus says this, a lot of Christians are familiar with this passage. He says, if you're thirsty, let him come to me and drink, because out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Jesus is basically riffing off of the water libation ceremony. And he's saying, you guys, it's all well and good that you are performing this ceremony and you're petitioning the Lord to send you the rain and you're drawing water from the pool of Siloam. But he's basically saying, what you're doing in a physical sense, I can offer you in a spiritual sense if you will put your faith in me. He's saying, I am the source of the true living and the true spiritual waters that you need to refresh your soul and to find salvation. So putting Jesus in his Jewish context there can really help us understand kind of the metaphors that he's using and how he's drawing on the Jewish celebration of Sukkot, and in particular, the water libation ceremony to say, hey, look to me, look to me for the true living water. Don't just do, do the outward ceremony, but find the true spiritual fulfillment in me and, of course, through the, the Holy Spirit. So there's a real application for us that, that is there in Sukkot, but then this is also leading into what I would say would be the deepest prophetic meaning of the feast and how it will be celebrated in the Messianic age when Jesus comes back. So I'll start by reading also uh, Zechariah chapter 14 in verse 16 through 19, Zechariah actually says that when the Messiah comes, we will celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles, and actually all the nations will celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. Here's what he says. Then the survivors from all the nations that have attacked Jerusalem will go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord Almighty, and to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. If any of the people of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord Almighty, they will have no rain. If the Egyptian people do not go up and take part, they will have no rain. This will be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations that do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. So you see there, again, just like with the water libation ceremony, the celebration of Sukkot in the Messianic age is what will allow the nations of the earth to have rain on their land in the days of the kingdom. And Zechariah is saying that the people will have to go up to Jerusalem to actually celebrate Sukkot and to bless the Lord and to honor the Lord and probably to bring him a sacrifice and an offering from their prior year's harvest they will have to go up and honor the Lord just like the Jews did in the time of Jesus 
in order to have his blessing on their land in the coming year, which is really fascinating there how Zechariah makes that, that same connection. Another thing you see here in the passage from Zechariah is he, he specifically connects Sukkot to the kingship of God and to the reign of God. And one of the reasons for that, as I've shared in some of the, the earlier podcasts that I've done in the last couple months, is that the fall feast were really tied to God's kingship more than, than the other feasts in a certain way. So with the Feast of Trumpets, that's where God's kingship was, you could say, formally acknowledged and announced with the trumpet blast. And you see this throughout scripture, you see this at Mount Sinai, you see this in other contexts where the, the kingship of God and his enthronement is announced with the trumpet blast. So that happens, the Feast of Trumpets, on the first day of the seventh month. God's kingdom and his kingship is proclaimed. And then during the Day of Atonement, really what was happening was the place of God's throne, which was the tabernacle or the Holy of Holies in the temple, was purged and cleansed. And the reason the tabernacle and the temple was purged on the Day of Atonement and cleansed was so that God could continue to abide there, so that he could continue to reign in the midst of Israel. And so many scholars have pointed out that there's a real theme of kingship also on the Day of Atonement, because this is basically when God's throne room in the tabernacle or temple is made again to be a suitable place for him to dwell. So then, when you come to the Feast of Tabernacles, the Day of Atonement's on the 10th of the seventh month, then the Feast of Tabernacles starts on the 15th of the uh, seventh month, the Feast of Tabernacles then goes for seven days, but it's really just continuing on the celebration of God's kingship that was taking place during the, the other fall feasts. You have the Feast of Trumpets on the first of the month, the Day of Atonement on the 10th of the month, and then the Feast of Tabernacles on the 15th of the month. And all of this is completing the enthronement of God, you could say. His enthronement is announced with trumpets The place on Feast of Trumpets, his throne room is purified on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement on the 10th, and then the Feast of Tabernacles is really the time to just celebrate him as the king and to feast in his presence. So that's what you see there in Zechariah as well. Zechariah 14 is he saying that the Feast of Tabernacles in the Messianic age is going to be the time when we rejoice and feast in the presence of the king. And so it's, it's closely connected to this idea of God's presence among his people. And it's been that way throughout history as well. Another interesting fact is that in the days of Solomon, in the book of 1 Kings, we see that Solomon actually brought the Ark of the Covenant into the temple during the Feast of Tabernacles. And he brought the Ark into the Holy of Holies, and then the glory of God came to dwell in the temple. And so... Also, what the Feast of Tabernacles is pointing forward to is this time when the glory of God will return to the earth. And I've speculated in my, my book on the feast and in other videos, it could be that the glory of God when Eze that Ezekiel talks about, you see this at the end of Ezekiel, he talks about the glory of God coming into the millennial temple. And I can't say for sure 
will the glory of God come back to the earth and dwell there, just like the vision Ezekiel saw in Ezekiel chapter 1, he says in Ezekiel chapter 43, that's going to come back to the earth. Will that happen during the Feast of Tabernacles precisely like it did in the days of Solomon? I don't know for sure, but what I'm saying is, generally speaking, this is the time of year that's pointing us forward to the days when God will again dwell among us. And it won't just be Jesus, the Son, that will dwell among us, but it it will actually be the glory of God the Father. And then he will bring us into the abundance of the Messianic age and into this time of feasting, and we'll go up to Jerusalem, and we'll be there with the Messiah, and all the nations will be bringing their harvest to the Lord and petitioning his mercy for the rain on the land. And that's really what the Feast of Tabernacles is looking forward to. Basically, the Feast of Tabernacles is celebrating and anticipating everything we yearn for as followers of the Messiah. It's a beautiful feast. It's a beautiful time of celebration. And like all the feasts, it has many, many deep layers tied to what the Lord has done, kind of the spiritual application we can draw in the Messiah now, but ultimately it is directing our attention to much better days that are on the horizon. So I'm going to wrap it up there for today, guys. If you want to learn more, again, you can check out my book, The Biblical Feast and the Return of Jesus. Also, you can go to my website, shilohmedia.org. I've got some other resources on there. You can sign up for my email list, and I plan on uh, putting up some more articles and teachings and things like that in the future. So thanks so much for tuning in. I uh, look forward to sharing more in the future, and uh, we'll see you guys in the next one. Peace out. Thanks for listening to Bible Prophecy Daily. We hope you learned something valuable today. Be sure to subscribe wherever you heard this podcast so you never miss an episode. 